Fear not. Two of the most important words that have ever fallen upon condemned human ears. Fear not. And the sky tore open with brilliant, dazzling, incredible, blinding light and surrounded the most unlikely of people. People who were working the graveyard shift, hanging out with a bunch of smelly animals, and they heard from the heavens the sound that said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And into the darkness, into the darkness of time and space came rushing in the best news that the weary world has ever known. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus said, I am the light. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's what we're celebrating this Christmas. The light of the world breaking through and coming down. We've been talking about things that matter the last few weeks. We've been talking about what are those essential things that we put in our box of essentials that, that we, we have to believe. These are the things that, 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 that separate us from so much of what is outside, but yet bring us together as the people of God. Now, there are a lot of people out there that will tell you that they believe in Jesus. And being the optimistic, kind-hearted people that we are, we often just say, oh, that's wonderful, me too. And then we move on to talk about other things. We talk about, relig- we talk about weather, we talk about sports, we talk about baking, whatever it is we talk about. But to do that is actually a potentially huge mistake. And that's because what a lot of people will say that they believe about Jesus, they believe in Jesus, the, thing that's, the things that they believe about Jesus, they make all the difference between saving faith and faith that really doesn't do anything. Just saying you believe in Jesus doesn't, doesn't mean anything if the Jesus that you believe in is not the Jesus that the Bible proclaims to us. And like last week, we mentioned a, a, a self-esteem type Jesus. That may make it easier for us to look in the mirror and live with ourselves, but he's powerless to save you from the the wrath of God or to restore the broken relationship that you have with your maker. Let me make the, the, the understatement of the year, really for all time. What you believe about Jesus matters. It absolutely matters. In fact, in Galatians 1, that chapter goes so far as to say in verse 8, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. You know what that essentially is saying? That is essentially saying, let them go to hell. Let them go to hell for leading other people to hell. Let them go to hell because they don't know, they don't believe, they don't teach the truth about Jesus. And someone will say, someone has to say, well, that doesn't sound very nice. In fact, that makes me feel rather uncomfortable to say something like that about people who believe a little differently than I do. Well, 
when the truth makes the difference between eternal life and eternal torment and death, I don't think we can say it's a mistake to talk that way. In fact, to talk about it any other way, in in, in a nicer, less extreme, more polite, less offensive way, is to actually deceive people into thinking that right belief in Christ is optional. Heaven forbid that any of us, out of a desire to make anyone feel good, lead them to their eternal demise. It's like we just smile and do that that rose parade wave as they march on steadily down toward the gates of darkness. We can't do that. My friends, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. If it's true that Christ is the light that has come to people who walked in darkness, then we've got to make sure that we make him known. Do you want to make him known? Let's make him known. What do we we believe about Jesus? What is it about Jesus that we put into our box of essentials? Well, we believe that Jesus is God incarnate. From the time that sin entered into the world, all creation has been groaning for the moment when God would send a Savior to redeem and reconcile all things to himself. Colossians 1.20 tells us, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his Christ. The Bible tells us that from all the way back in the beginning, in fact, all the way back into Genesis 3, that hope was actually on the way. As God was even pronouncing the curse for for what Adam and Eve did, for, for the sin that they had committed, he was at the same time sneaking in, not really sneaking, but kind of couching in there the hope The promise, as he said in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You know, Satan may have succeeded in swaying the pinnacle of God's creation. His image bears away from him. But there was going to come a day when the son of a woman would deal that fatal, that final blow to him, that fatal final wound. In Genesis 12, 3, God was at it again and sharing the hope. He said to a, a man who was steeply in, uh, deeply entrenched in pagan darkness, and he said to this man, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And from that day forward, Abraham knew that his family, through his family line, there was something very, very important to the human race that was going to come. The specifics of the hope that God had promised, they were fleshed even out further in Isaiah 53, where God said that the one who is coming, there is coming one who had No former majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. 
as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And then he goes on. He says, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The message was clear. God was going to break in to human history as humanity spiraled deeper and deeper into darkness. He was going to intervene and create a way for rescue, for reconciliation, for renewal. Isaiah 43, a voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken." The voice would declare this. That voice, Matthew's gospel tells us, was John the Baptist. And the glory that he was declaring to every living thing, that was Jesus Christ. You know, it wasn't just prophecies that pointed to Jesus. As you read the Bible, you see it again and again and again. You see types, you see shadows, you see uh, things that point us to Jesus. The Old Testament temple, that was one of those things. Jesus, speaking of himself, said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The temple was a picture of Jesus. The Levitical priesthood, that was a picture of Jesus as well. It pointed to Jesus. Hebrews 4.14 tells us that we now have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. The Israelite sacrifices they were pointing to Jesus as well. Hebrews 10.12 tells us that Christ was offered once for all as a single sacrifice for the sins of the world. The Passover pointed to Jesus by having the blood of his sacrifice applied to the, the doorpost of your life. You and I can escape the coming judgment of God because of that. Passover points to Jesus. The Jewish law points to Jesus. Not only did it point to him, he would actually become the complete fulfillment of it. Pastor Joe's going to speak to us next week a little bit more about that. Jesus is what the world has been waiting for. Jesus is the solution to the biggest problem that we have in life. We need Jesus. The world needs Jesus. So who's Jesus? Well, he's not like the rest of us. Jesus is God incarnate. And that's the reason he can say these incredible things. He says, he says this in Matthew 11. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son, except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus had a relationship with God the Father that is on a level that no one else can claim. Jesus is God incarnate. 
It's the reason he can say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus claimed an authority that nobody else had. He held the keys to the kingdom. It's because Jesus is God incarnate. (laughs) Jesus said, I am the bread of life. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. It's an incredible statement. He said in John 7, 37, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You know, unlike the other spiritual leaders that have been around, that have existed, Jesus did not lead horses to water. (laughs) No, Jesus was the food and water that they needed. In the same way, Jesus didn't point others to truth, or at least just point others to truth. He said that he was the truth. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We already mentioned, he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Anyone here weighed down and feel burdened today? We could go on and on. We could talk about how Jesus claimed to be the true vine that you need to be connected with. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will never die. He claimed that he had existed before Abraham. And before even the world was formed, he was there. How can he claim to be all these things? It's because he's like no one else. Jesus is God incarnate. He said, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus isn't just like God. That's a very, very important point. He's not just like God. He is God. He said, I and the Father are one. He says that in John 10, 30. Before anything else existed, he was there. He didn't yet have the the name Jesus Christ yet, but he was there. Make no doubt about that. He existed as a second person in the Trinity, God the Son, or as John tells us, the divine logos, the, the, the living word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was very similar to God. No way. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In fact, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He existed with the Father and the Spirit from eternity past. He carried out the Father's will by creating everything that exists. Look around you. All of this and so much more. And then, when the determined time came, he stepped into time and space and became a human being. And the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God incarnate. Yes, but what does that actually mean? How did, how did, how did He do that? What, what, what does it mean for God to become a man? It's, it's crucial that we understand this and put it in our box of essentials. Jesus Christ is God incarnate, but Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, one person in two natures. Have you ever heard someone say, them's fighting words? You've heard someone say that. I've, heard some, I've said that. Uh, Jesus is fully God. That's a phrase that it doesn't sit well with a lot of people. For the Jews, even the hint that Jesus was, was God, that, that was a repulsive thought. <laughs> no way. That was a thought. In fact, you, you, you claim, make that claim, that's worthy of capital punishment. John 5, 18, we read, This is why many of the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. For the Jews, there's only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. That's the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. This is the core of their faith. And the last thing a good Jew ever wanted to be accused of was worshiping someone or something other than the one true God. And yet, since the very, very beginning, the early Christians, many of them Jews, worshipped Jesus as God. In fact, we have documentation from a reliable source in AD 110 that the Roman governor Pliny reports to the emperor that Christians were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God, he writes. And he adds, and they refused to worship anyone else as God. For devout, God-fearing Jews to do something like that, boy, they would have had to have been absolutely convinced, no doubt in their minds, that Jesus was God. The Jews weren't the only ones who had a problem with Jesus being God. The Greek philosophers, they believed that God was, was almost unattainable. High above anything else, uh, not related to anything material, not related to anything worldly. God was transcendent. He was otherly. Don't you dare suggest that God could stoop so low to actually become human. In fact, this was such a big deal that the 4th century uh, pastor in Alexandria named Arius, he began teaching that, yes, Jesus is the Son of God, but He's not equal to God. He might be way up there, but, but not quite equal with God. Arius taught, Arius taught that Jesus was like God, and the, the, the theological term is homoousia. He's, he's like God, but not quite the same. He's not homoousia. He's not of the same substance as God. And someone might say, well, okay, this is getting way too technical, and I'm starting to think about lunch now. Who really cares about this? What is the big deal? Is it a big deal? It is a big deal. 
It's a tremendous, it's of tremendous importance. If Jesus isn't actually fully, totally God, well, first of all, there's no way he could have made God accurately known to people. In fact, he would have been lying when he said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Flat out lie. Flat out lie. No one could believe him when he said that the only way to to enter the kingdom of God was through him. Or that anyone could get to the Father through him. No one could believe that. He's just, he's just lying. He's making it up. What is this? Jesus, you just want all the attention? You just want all the popularity? You just want every eye to look to you? What do you want? Donations? Romans 5, 8 tells us, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But if Jesus wasn't fully God, then that wouldn't be necessarily true. If Jesus isn't actually fully, totally God, then there's no way that he could have had the power to forgive or to save anyone. In fact, God claims in Isaiah 43, 11, God says, salvation is mine. It belongs to me. He says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. And it kind of makes sense. If, if God is the one that we sinned against then isn't it true that only God can really forgive that sin? I mean, I, mean, I could declare your sins forgiven. I could pretend that I'm, I'm some type of priest and you're going to come to me and you're going to confess your sins. First of all, please don't do that. I do not want to hear all of those things. <laughs> I won't be able to handle it. But even if I said, you know what, your sins are forgiven, my son or my daughter, it would be meaningless. It would be totally meaningless because I'm not the one who's been offended. That's God. He has to do it. And so if Jesus is not really God, he's just a big fat liar. When he said to the paralytic man, take up your bed and walk, your, your sins are forgiven. You know, all the objections of all the religious people that were all around saying, whoa, 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 he can't say that. They would have been absolutely right. Jesus can't say that. He's not God. You know, if Jesus isn't fully God, we're just wasting our time. Just wasting our time. We better. We might as well just just sail on out of here. Grab a donut on your way out. Sail on out of here and take our church clothes off. Go change into something more comfortable. Fill up the ice chest with uh, you know some drinks and go head down to the beach. You want to go? Want to go? Let's go. Let's do it. Why not? If Jesus isn't fully God, it doesn't matter. None of this matters. This is make believe hour. This is fantasy time here. I don't know about you, but if Jesus isn't who he said he was, I have a whole long list of other things that I could be doing other than this. But we believe Jesus is fully God. Not only is he fully God, but he's also fully man. There's another group of Greek philosophers known as the Gnostics, and they believed that if Jesus was God, okay, let's say that he was God, he couldn't possibly actually be human. If he was just a, a man, then, then he just looked like one. He wasn't an actual physical human. To them, Jesus was purely a spiritual being. So he couldn't have a real human body. What everyone saw, well, that was just, that was just a phantasm. That was just kind of an illusion. This kind of thinking is known as docetism. 
There's another heretical notion. You can see, you see people are trying, to struggling. How do we figure out God incarnate? How does this actually work? Here's another one. Uh, the bishop of Laodicea, Apollinaris. He believed that when God came to dwell in a human body, that he kicked everything human out of that body. So soul, goodbye. Mind, goodbye. Everything else, goodbye. I'll take this flesh and bones. I'll take this. But inside, I am fully God. That's what Apollinaris taught. The word became flesh. Well, it makes sense. This means that Jesus was only taking on the form of a human being, but he wasn't actually human and therefore didn't die an actual human death as a full human. You want more? I got more. Don't you love a good juicy heresy? I had one professor that said, you know, the, my best days, my best days is when I get on my sailboat. I thought, how does a professor at Biola have a sailboat? I get on my sailboat, and I sail out to Catalina, and I've got a good heretic in my hands. Like, wow. All right. Whatever, whatever floats your boat, buddy. Here's another one. Archbishop, Arch, Archbishop of Constantinople, Nestorius, he had another idea. It was this. Jesus is actually two persons in one. And so somehow there was the man Jesus, just like in any of you human beings, there was, there was the man Jesus, and then God the Son, and they kind of teamed up and dwelled in the same body. This is getting a little weird, right? <laughs> a teacher at a monastery outside Constantinople taught that God just kind of absorbed everything that was human about Jesus. And so when you're making tea and you pour the honey in there and it just kind of like dissolves, that's kind of what it was like. He, he, the human nature just kind of assimilated and disappeared into the divine nature. Who is Jesus? What does it mean for him to be God incarnate? Well, all of this got resolved at a council, the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And that's where they didn't, they didn't come up with this new idea. They didn't, this wasn't an invention. Oh, we're, we need to refine Christianity here. and We need to make it better. No, it wasn't that. It was, the whole task was, what does the Bible actually teach here? And how do we talk about this? They concluded this. They wrote this. With, with all one accord, we all with one accord, teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God, truly man. The distinction of the natures being in no way abolished because of the union, but rather the characteristic property of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person. That's what we believe the Bible teaches. Jesus is fully God, but at the same time, fully man. Two natures, one person. And again, you might be thinking, who cares? Why does this matter? And to that I say, are you kidding me? You're not, you're not just chomping at the bit to get out of here and change what you wrote in your Christmas cards and to, and to change your lawn decorations and somehow picture the hypostatic union on your lawn for your whole community to see you. What's wrong with you people? Come on, this is amazing. No, we put this in our box of essentials because it matters. Not only does it matter, it's what the Bible teaches in 1 John 4, 2, it says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 
And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. You want to know how serious this is? This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Say that Jesus is not fully human and you do grievous bodily harm to the gospel. Jesus had to be human. That's a must for the good news to actually be good because if Jesus wasn't fully human, well, he couldn't have represented us at the cross. He couldn't have been the one who stood in our place. He couldn't have made up for Adam's failure. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. Verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation, fancy theological word, that just means satisfaction. When you, when you go to buy something at the store, the clerk, they don't, they don't give you the, what, what you're purchasing unless you pay the appropriate amount of the appropriate stuff, right? you got to have the appropriate stuff. You don't pay with gumballs and jelly beans. That just that doesn't cut it. I don't need this stuff. You have to pay with the acceptable currency, and to make the payment for the sins of humanity, the right type of payment had to be offered, a human payment. Jesus couldn't just appear to be human. A counterfeit Christ would have been spotted a mile away. No, he had to be the real deal. He had to live a real human life in a human body and die a human death. He had to be fully God to forgive sins and to be perfect and sinless and righteous and that righteous sacrifice. But at the same time, he also had to be fully human to represent the ones he was being sacrificed for. This, my friends, is what makes Jesus the answer to our human problem. And it's also what makes Jesus the unifying figure between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because of who Jesus is, we see how God's character is both perfectly just and perfectly loving at the same time. You know, for centuries, people have wanted to throw out the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament, we don't want anything to do with that. That's what Marcion taught. We don't need that old judgmental, he called it an inferior God, inferior to the God of the New Testament, this loving, this wonderful, this merciful, patient, humble God that we see in Jesus Christ. But Jesus unites both the, te the Testaments and allows us to see how God is necessarily just, necessarily holds human beings accountable, and at the same time is perfectly loving. And this is amazing. Jesus isn't somehow an, an, an alternative God. You know, yeah, that God of the Old Testament, let's get rid of that idea. He doesn't replace the old God. No, he is the one that we have been waiting for for all time. The one who, even as God was pronouncing that curse back in Genesis 3, he promised was coming. He's the Messiah. And herein lies another essential that we have to put in our box. Israel 
Jesus Christ is Israel's promised Messiah. All throughout the New Testament, you, you, you see this. We're directed back to the reality that Jesus is the fulfillment of what God had promised in the Old Testament. Matthew's gospel repeatedly does this. He starts in the genealogies, and he points that, to the, the reality that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, not only a descendant of Abraham, but he's an heir to the throne of the king of David. Matthew calls him the son of of David. He calls him the king of the Jews. He's revealed as fulfilling all of the things that the prophets foretold again and again and again. Luke tells us, Luke tells us that uh, the angel said this to Mary. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's Messiah speak. That's Messiah language there. In the record of, of Mary's song, Mary sings this. She says, He, that is God, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring. In other words, the birth of Jesus, that's the fulfillment of all of those messianic prophecies. That Jesus was in fact the long-awaited Messiah. And that's attested to over and over and over again. Paul does it. The writer of Hebrews does it. Jesus himself does it. In John 5, 46, he says, he's the one, I'm the one that Moses was writing about. In 8, 56, he says, Abraham longed to see this day. In Luke 24, 27, he, he says, begin, or it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning who? Himself. And he told his disciples, he said, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So we believe that Jesus is God incarnate. We believe that he's fully God, fully man, one person, two natures. We believe that he's Israel's promised Messiah, one last thing, at least for today. We need to make it clear that we believe that Jesus Christ was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Enter Bethlehem, enter Mary, Joseph, animals, <laughs> stable, enter a little baby, lying in a feeding trough, also called a manger. There are people who don't believe in the virgin birth. They just say, it's, it's too spectacular, it's too miraculous, it, it, it cannot be. And to them, I, I just say, really? <laughs> so you're going you're gonna to say, it's, it's okay for God to have been able to create everything that you see, and yet it's not, he's not capable of causing this to happen? Really? They say that it's just something the early Christians made up. They, they made it up to add to the mystery, to the miracle, to the, to the wow factor of this Jesus that they believed in. Well, the reality is that would have been a really bonehead move. Just uh, idiotic. Who would do this? Because in a Jewish culture that was repulsed by the sexual immorality of the Gentiles and the weirdness of their gods, any notion that gave the slightest hint that Jesus' origin was anything but legitimate, <laughs> that would have been immediately and strenuously denounced, avoided. We don't want to have anything to do with that. 
On the contrary, if Christians had any doubts of the reality of the virgin birth, we'd expect them to be doing anything and everything. Let's, let's, let's keep that us on the down low. This is not going to make us popular. Everyone's going to be saying things. Everyone's going to be spreading rumors about us. We don't want them thinking that something fishy was going on there with Mary. We don't want any of that. That's exactly what they would have been doing. We don't see that. No, we believe that the virgin birth is the truth. Yes, it's miraculous. Even Mary, she was startled by the news. She knew uh, what the angel was suggesting was not normal. <laughs> Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm, I'm a virgin? Now, she didn't take the class, but she kind of knows a few things about how things work in the world. And the angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and caused her to conceive, it tells us something very, very important. For one, that the coming of Christ into the world was purely an act of God. God comes to us. He saves us. We do nothing. We do nothing. Mary wasn't going to have a child. She, had, she wasn't married to Joseph. She hadn't been with Joseph. This is an impossibility. Guess what? God makes it happen. God intervenes. Just as Genesis tells us that the Spirit of God, remember this, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, an instrumental player in creation. So here he is again, at work, overshadowing, <laughs> bringing about the hope of the world within the body of this young Jewish girl. The original creation, the original Adam, brought sin and death into the world. Adam. The second man, as Paul tells us, the Holy Spirit miraculously conceiving to bring about righteousness and life and hope and peace and joy. Finally, one last thing. The virgin birth also tells us that Jesus is in fact who we understand him to be. He's not simply a man whom the Spirit of God descended upon and, and indwelt for, for a, a period of time. Nor is he just some type of, of spirit that, that walked and talked and cut ahead the, 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 the sense, gave the sense of, of a real person. No, Jesus is the eternal Son of God, become the Son of God. Of man. I like how one author puts it. He says, The Creator became a creature. The Word became flesh. The Judge became the one who is judged, thus reconciling humanity to Himself. Who is Jesus to you? What is Jesus to you? 
If he's anything less than God incarnate, fully God, fully human, one person, two natures, the promised Messiah, the one who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, anything less than that, you've got the wrong Jesus. You may have, a, have someone that people are much more comfortable hanging out with. <laughs> you don't have the one who meets your greatest need by reconciling, rescuing, and renewing you. This Christmas, may we see Jesus for who he truly is. May we draw near to him as our one and only hope and worship him with all we've got. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, son of God, Son of man, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Fair are the meadows, fair are the woodlands, robed in the blooming garb of spring. Jesus is fairer. Jesus is purer, who makes the woeful heart to sing. Fair is the sunshine, fair is the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry hosts. Jesus shines brighter, Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. Beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations, Son of God and Son of Man, glory and honor, praise and adoration now and forevermore be thine. Amen? Amen. This morning we have the opportunity to remind ourselves that Jesus is ours. We say things like, the greatest gift of all time was given at Christmas, that very first Christmas. You know it's true. And that's what we're celebrating this morning as we take this little prepackaged prepackaged elements here that uh, so inadequately points to our Savior, and yet it points. The bread represents Christ's body that was given for us, sacrificed on that cross. That was a real human sacrifice that was made. And the juice represents the blood of Jesus Christ, actual human blood that was shed for you and for me as a representative sacrifice for our sins that we might be washed clean and forgiven. This is incredible what Christ has done for us. I'm going to pray and Corey's going to come up. Corey, you can make your way up right now. And he's going to lead in some instrumental music. And I would just encourage you, as you hold these in your hands, think about what they mean and think about whether or not this is the Jesus that you are relying upon. The Jesus who loves you and whom you love that makes all the difference. And if you are, are, are near a friend or family member, I encourage you, just spend a moment just praying together.
thanking, praising God together. And then take it when you're ready. Worshiping, thanking, rejoicing in the work that Christ has done for you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Lord, when we try to wrap our heads around the reality of who Christ is, uh, it's mind-boggling. And, and we admit we, we, don't, we understand so little. And yet, Lord, what we do understand, we believe is taught in your revealed word and that it is true. And so we cling to it. And we see some of the logic behind it. And Lord, we raise our voices and raise our hands and we say glory to God in the highest. May the peace that Christ has given us, Lord, may it exude from us. May the love that we have experienced in Him flow out from us, especially today and the weeks ahead as we interact with people who are in desperate need of Jesus who are still walking in darkness, some of whom are in our, fa- in our families. And we're going to be meeting with them. And it's awkward, and it's difficult, and it's challenging. And we don't know what to say, Lord, but they, may they, as they spend time with us, may they know your love. And may they be directed, just like so many different types and shadows and prophecies in the Old Testament point to you. May our lives and our words point them to you. Lord, we thank you for the body of Christ that was given for us. We thank you for the blood that was shed. We thank you that it is only through Jesus Christ that we can be washed clean, that we can be rescued from our sin and the punishment that it deserves, that we can be reconciled to you and our relationship with you restored, and that we can be transformed and renewed into people that once again show everyone else what you are like. We love you. We pray that this time that we have right now would honor you and build your people. In Christ's name, amen.